Brought to you by Leave the Ring Network. All boxing, no filter. Oh! It's another knockdown. He's not getting up, Jim. He get up. He's not getting up, Jim. He's not getting up. No, he's been knocked out. It's over. Mamma mia, he's done it. Anthony Joshua defeats Vladimir Klitschko. AJ does it in style. Beaten down, hopeless, without an answer, and Lomachenko has made Rigondeaux quit. It's Fistionados with Evan Rutkowski. He's a good boy, you know. Hello, Fight Fans. It is Wednesday, January 29th, and this is the Fistionados podcast on the Leave It in the Ring radio network. I'm your host, Evan Murkowski, former HBO sports marketing executive, giving you my take on what's happening in the sport of boxing on your screen and behind the scenes. Email me at fistinados at yahoo.com. Follow me on Twitter at fistinadospod. We are also brought to you by Ring Magazine and ringtv.com. And then obviously, in case you can't tell, apologies, I have a cold. I was too sick to record yesterday, which I wanted to do. Because this is Super Bowl week and there's that fight on Thursday night. Um, But let's get into a deep dive this week. will be uh, the 154 weight class. And kind of, I'm going to take an idea that other people have talked about a lot. Especially, shout out to Rafe Rafe Bartholomew on this. A 154-pound tournament is specifically a PBC one. And I'm going to kind of go through what some of the challenges are on the network side. Um, and, and maybe some of the challenges the PBC faces or, or, or maybe why they should do it, but let's get into it. All right. In the review section, there were two fight cards from January 18th. Let's start with the Fox card from Philadelphia where Jason Rosario beats Julian J. Rock Williams by KO5. Also on the card, Chris Colbert beats Jezreel Corrales by unanimous decision for the vacant, uh, WBA interim junior lightweight title. Obviously, Jason Rosario wins two titles from from J-Rock Williams as well. That was for a unified uh, 154 bout. Joey Spencer, I mean, I kind of just played with my kids during Joey Spencer's six-round broadcast. I don't mean to pick on him too much, but, like, let's – well, we'll get to that in a second. The show does an average of 1.3 million viewers on the network, peaking at 1.565 million. If you count the streaming and Deportes – Averages about 1.4 million. Not a great number. Now, given the holiday weekend and the stiff competition, it's not a total disaster. But just for context, it was the lowest viewed network show uh, from any network on Saturday night. Uh, and it faced a lot of reruns. So if we're, if we're really being honest on that, it, it did not do that well. Uh, the only thing that, it, it, you know, only thing that really nothing did well Um at least on network TV. Uh, the only thing that even did remotely well was the NBA on ABC, which only did 2.9 million viewers. It did at least get a 0.9 rating. PBC got a 0.3 for context. Um, and to be honest, that's really not that good for the NBA on a Saturday night. So I'd say you can chalk it up to the holiday weekend. You can chalk it up to the stiff competition from cable TV where Conor McGregor uh, that fight was on pay-per-view. His prelims aired opposite PBC Boxing, 
they were the number one cable show of the night. They averaged more than 1.7 million viewers with pretty amazing demos. More on that in a second because that was actually the lead-in to the ESPN fight uh, that aired just after the PBC. The other disappointing element to this is that when you look at what the Keith Thurman fight did last year with the NFL playoff promo, it did much better than this card did. It averaged close to 2 million viewers. It peaked at like 2.7. Uh, it's a pretty big difference. So, you know, this rating was sort of a more ho-hum, not a great date in the spring or summer. Uh, and, you know, you want to see this average closer to what these December shows have done or closer to what the Thurman show did when you have the NFL to promo it. Now, I don't think they promoted it as much as they did uh, certainly the Spence Porter pay-per-view with the NFL stuff, certainly the Wilder Ortiz pay-per-view with the NFL stuff. They didn't do it as much, but you did see some, some, some solid promo for it. Still, overall, not a great number. Uh, let's, you know, but again, not a disaster by any means. Let's talk about the end of cards for a second. Um, I have a lot to say about the main event, but the main event is going essentially going to be part of the deep dive. Chris Colbert, in terms of the end of the card, Fantastic prog uh, prospect, and the first half of that fight against Kraus was really not interesting at all, but it ended up getting really exciting towards the end, and I think, you know, Colbert just, he's not a prospect to watch anymore, like he's kind of, kind of has like an interim 130-pound title, I mean, remember, the WBA literally has like three or four titleists at that weight class, so who knows what what's going to really end up happening there, I think they have three total, but more importantly than that, he's just a really good young boxer um and he took out someone that you know even when i was on at, at hbo towards the end in corrales who was kind of just like this tough style matchup for anyone and a really good fighter so i think it's an impressive victory um you know top rank and espn do have most of the elite fighters at this weight class but i think pbc has plenty of good featherweights uh so a lot of whom have talked about moving up and you know we're in this world where none of the Fights at 130 pounds are particularly expensive to make. So if there was a commitment by either Fox or Showtime for this guy, I'm sure they could find some names for him. He's definitely one to watch. You know, Joey Spencer, like, this guy may end up being good, but he's getting one of the sort of plum spots on a Fox broadcast. And he probably should be on one of those like buried on one of those DAZN cards where he's a prospect way down the list. He's just not really ready for this, and we're kind of seeing these awkward parts of his development where he is learning stuff in the ring, uh, but it's just, it's just not great TV. So put him on FS2, something like that. He may even be at, end up being a champ one day, but you know, I'm not sure how much this is helping us as a consumer. All right, <clears throat> we'll and, and we'll get to Williams Rosario in a little bit more detail. I thought it was a really good fight, um, and, and obviously a major upset. Rosario was like a, a you know Williams was like a twenty five to one favorite. I mean, I think you know Rosario at that the underdog odds odds at that point are like only nine or ten to one, but still, it's uh, that one was a bit of a stunner and uh, had some ebbs and flows. Great fight but more on that in a second. All right, from Verona, New York, and on ESPN, we had a lighter storm. Alvarez beating Michael Seals by KO7, and really an early knockout of the year candidate, which a lot of other people have talked about, um, but, but a really boring fight up until that point. 
And then Felix Verdejo beating Manuel Rojas by unanimous decision. The show does an average of 704,000 viewers. It is the number 10 cable show of the night. The show follows the prelims for the Conor McGregor pay-per-view, which was the number one cable show of the night, averaging more than 1.7 million viewers with pretty amazing demos. Before that, ESPN actually had two college basketball games, which were the number six and number two cable shows of the day. Uh, And the 6 p.m. game actually went over 2 million viewers just because of how ratings work. It was still the number two show of of the day in terms of cable ratings. But let's get to the takeaways here. This has to be viewed as a win for Top Rank and ESPN, uh, though there are a couple of things that you can critique them on for. 700,000 sort of ish viewers is a really decent number, especially compared to what, uh, you know. Actually, let me, let me. It's a really decent number compared to what happened last year on the whole. However, when you compare it to what Top Rank did after fight card prelims like after UFC prelims last year they usually did a better a better number than that now the demos were really strong for this and they really didn't put in a high profile fighter at all I mean let's just be honest Elijah Storm Alvarez Colombian fighter based in Quebec I mean there's really not much of a United States connection there Um, and even though he was a champ he was a champ for like a brief moment basically so you know he's not really a star, and uh, so given that, it's a pretty good, uh, you know, pretty good rating fighting a completely unknown opponent. Um, so you like the other thing about UFC prelims is that many times the UFC pay per view numbers actually dip far below the prelim numbers. Connor is a different story. He is now. I think he's basically the outlier here, uh, and I don't know what pay-per-view number he'll actually end up doing. Dave Meltzer reported the traffic is the traffic was as if it was a two million pay-per-view buy. I think based on uh, UFC numbers on ESPN, from what I have heard unofficially in the past. This would translate probably to something in the 1.3, 1.4 million pay-per-view buy range, which is still a big victory for ESPN because they get better distribution uh, fees than what cable companies have done or, or, the, or that what the UFC had, had done in the past with other cable companies. Anyways, that's all beside the point. Really, the, the key takeaway here is if you're top rank on ESPN, you want to piggyback on what is no doubt going to be a big prelim number for the pay-per-views but you also got to figure much more of the people who watch the prelims for a conor mcgregor fight are going to convert to actually then purchasing the pay-per-view itself so it's difficult math to do and actually back when there was reporting on this with some of the fs1 numbers i think it's probably the only time uh you know like ufc's done over 200 pay-per-views i'm sure five or less have actually been scenarios where the prelims actually did less total viewers than the than the pay-per-view by total. And you, you gotta figure a lot of those are Connor. So he's he's that much of a draw. So at the end of the day, there's some factors where you sit here and say, going back to the top rank number, there's some factors where you sit here and say, hey, it's seven hundred thousand viewers, not too great considering the circumstances. And there's some factors where you say, you know what, given the circumstances, that's 
that's a, a, a pretty solid win for them. In the ring for ESPN Boxing, um, you know, <clears throat> the main event just wasn't that interesting. Um, obviously, until the knockout, which is great for Alvarez's highlight reel. For Dejo, pretty unimpressive in his victory. I mean, I think the only thing of note here, um, you know, Top Rank got two dates that were sort of kind of throwaway dates. Like one was a holiday weekend, one was like really early on against NFL games. And we saw a pretty bad rating. Uh, you know, last week or, or last episode, we went over the first week of the year where it's pretty bad rating, but it had some promising numbers of people who switched the channel to go watch it after the football game ended. And then this one, you know, Conor McGregor, they're up against Conor McGregor, basically, and kind of a decent rating considering the circumstances. It did have a big lead in, which it did not retain much of. Uh, but given how well Conor sold on pay-per-view, you know, okay. Still did a decent number, you know, and whatever. Verdejo and Alvarez, who knows? I mean, Alvarez is clearly going to have some big fights at light heavyweight. Verdejo, I think he's just going to get fed to the Wolves eventually. Uh, you know, he's somewhat of a name still, whatever. One week later, Saturday, January 25th, from New York and on Showtime, we had Danny Garcia beating on Red Catch by wide unanimous decision in a WBC title eliminator, and then Jared Hearn making his comeback win with a wide unit of position against Francisco Santana uh, at junior middleweight. In the opener, Stephen Fulton beats Arnold Kagai by unanimous decision in what started out as a pretty good fight, and by the end of it, you know, Fulton emerged as the clear winner, but that was good TV. The show doesn't average, and the main event doesn't average, of 463,000 viewers. It was the number 52 cable show of the day. The undercards were the number 57 and 61 cable-rated shows of the day, averaging 408 and 417,000 viewers. You know, look, I went over this in the last episode. You're, we're just not going to get amazing boxing on TV in January, especially compared to what we got in the fall um, this past year. Like, historically, you just don't get it in January and February. Showtime put what I would call the best card on paper so far this year. And I think... You know, it didn't end up being that good for a variety of reasons. The undercard with Fulton and Kagai, like, Fulton, you kind of saw him learning in the ring. There were five or six rounds where there's some question as who was going to adjust. And then, you know, Fulton was clearly the man. He he adjusted. He went on one. That was a pretty good fight. Kind of everything else after that was pretty boring. I mean, Jarrett Hurd, you're trying seeing him try out a new style. I don't really know what we get out of that as an audience. Um, Jared Hurd is a big name, though, so you kind of have to go with him as, 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 you know, as an undercard fight. He just he looked so much bigger than Santana, uh, and you'd have to think historically Jared Hurd would get that guy out. But, you know, this time he didn't. And then Danny Garcia, I mean, look, he probably should be getting better TV numbers than that. At the same time, you know, that's actually – Pretty solid number given what Showtime did in 2019. So really not that bad. It's not great if you look at Danny Garcia's numbers over time. But he was in against, you know, Ivan Redcatch is really not that well known. Garcia came in. What I really was disappointed with is, you know, he basically blamed his lackluster performance on this weight cut. And it's kind of like, hey, how did you get so out of shape to begin with? Because... This was supposed to be you fighting Spence if you would have put that kind of effort in against Spence. 
probably would have gotten beaten handily. Um, anyways, Showtime actually has a couple of decent cards coming up. I'm excited to see what they're doing and, and what that narrative is going to be for the for you know the next couple of weeks this year and then into sort of the the later spring. Uh, usually the first half of the year is, 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 is when they do well. Um, and we've seen some promising signs. We've seen other stuff where we're like, okay, let, let, you know, let's do better. All right. Deep dive this week. Yet another departure from what I planned, but I just got kind of inspired by the 154 weight class after that upset with J-Rock and Rosario. <clears throat> you know, just to be clear on this issue, I think this is one of the most interesting weight classes. It is one of the most talented weight classes, but I don't think there's really an exceptional talent right now. Um, I think there are sort of, it's a lot of B pluses and A minuses. There's really no A's. And I think that's what makes it so interesting. And I think it's, Part of the, for hardcore fans, this is usually something that gets lauded, but I also want to point out that it can go really wrong really quickly if you don't have a clear pathway in this weight class for one or two guys to emerge, and that's what we're going to get into here. I mean, this, with the right few commercial moves, uh, or potential future moves, you could have a really commercially viable and successful sort of division here if you're PVC. And I also think this has the potential to just sort of fade into oblivion if it isn't marketed and commercialized properly. Uh, you know, again, Rafe Bartholomew wrote a great article on this sort of right before Christmas demanding a tournament. And a lot of other people have talked about it. And that's kind of what's inspired me. And I want to just see how that plays out as a concept. And then I want to look and, like I said above, explain what some of the risks are and what some of the risks are by not doing a tournament and then sort of what some of the network issues are, because I think that's actually going to help explain maybe why it won't happen. So let's just start off by saying like tournaments are really hard to pull off. I mean, but in the last two years, we've seen the world boxing super series successfully pull off five different tournaments. And I think one can certainly point out there's been issues in doing so, but the upside they've shown is incredible. Like, They've legit built three stars out of those five tournaments. And in the two that weren't super successful, like one was the second cruiserweight tournament in two years, which just wasn't really successful because it was kind of the sloppy seconds from the first one. Um, and then the other one, I'd say super middleweight, probably you could make an argument that Calum Smith didn't, or he did become well-known, but not a star and he just didn't capitalize on it properly. But I think Usyk, Josh Taylor, in a way, you can actually arguably say both Donaire and Progre really built their profiles to become true stars. You know, and they did it when their weight class wasn't commanding high purses. And now they have a much stronger argument to get high purses, and they have much more of a fan base. And I think you can see very realistic pathways for all of them to get in the ring, you know, with much bigger names and make life-changing money and, and have real staying power in the sport at the highest level for a while. You know, if we're looking at historically, 
the Super 6 probably wasn't as successful as the World Boxing Super Series in terms of getting a clear winner quickly, but it was interesting and it did build uh, it, it, it built some names at that weight class. I'm not really sure it built anyone into a major commercial star. I mean, Andre Ward did fight two pay-per-views, neither of which was super well-selling. But I do think, you know, it, most people would say it was a really good thing. And those are some of the positives that have come out of those tournaments. Now, they're really tough without an infrastructure to do, but I'd say, like, the biggest thing that you want to see out of this is fights leading to bigger fights and then kind of having a, a crescendo for the biggest fights. And without this infrastructure, it's hard to emphasize how challenging that they can these tournaments can be. But, I mean, obviously, PBC could do a 154 tournament right now, and I think we're in a, a unique scenario where the, the positives probably outweigh the negatives. And, I mean, I think we're almost at the point where the positives might even clearly outweigh the negatives and the pathway into this weight class falling into something where it just kind of loses fans interest is another part of it where there's actually a huge risk by not doing a tournament or a de facto tournament. And one of the things that Rosario's win accomplished that, you know, like a week and a half ago at this point, you know, besides giving Rosario two belts is that it made it a clear top eight fighters in the tournament. You know, Rosario is the only unified champion. He has the WBA and IBF belts. Jermel Charlo probably has the highest profile of any fighter. He has the WBC belt. And Arislandi Lara has the WBA regular belt um, since, of course, the WBA has to have more than one belt. And then the WBO belt is Patrick Teixeira, who we'll come back to in a second because he's with Golden Boy, but it appears right now that he there's a deal being made for him to fight uh, Brian Castaño, where I, I think Castaño would be favored, and you, and you might have an opportunity where all four major belts uh, are, are going to be at stake in, the, in, the turn, in just the PVC version of the tournament. So there's Rosario, Charlo, Lara, there's J-Rock, who was unified. Jarrett Hurd, who was also a former uh, champ, and he won this past weekend. And then Tony Harrison, who's another former champ, uh, who gave Charlo his only loss. So that's six high-profile champs or former champs with the PBC. Brian Castagna, like I mentioned above, looks like he will get a chance at the WBO, but we're not quite there yet. And then Erickson Lubin is also with the PBC. There, There's eight fighters. There's eight talented fighters, definitely worthy of competing in a tournament. And so just purely from a logistical standpoint, if you took those eight fighters, eight out of the top 10 fighters in ESPN, Transnational, and Rings, Ring Magazine's ratings, um, you know, the only other fighters <coughs> that are even ranked there, Liam Smith, Michael Soro, Patrick Teixeira. And this tells us a few things. Like basically PBC has a virtual monopoly on this weight class. And even with Teixeira holding the WBO title, likely facing Castaño for it next. You know, it's it's obviously it's it's gonna be tough for any other network besides Fox or Showtime to even care that much about it. And I mean ESPN literally proved this. I mean ESPN basically the Teixeira victory was on an ESPN plus undercard for 
for for one of these things. It, like it wasn't even on like a main event. And you know, I think the more important thing is if you're another promoter or network exec, even if Teixeira beats Castaño and retains the title, you just look at this situation. And you're just like, hey, we got nothing at stake here. Like, let PBC have 154. Let them figure it out. <clears throat> and that brings us to the biggest reason as to why PBC should do this, from my opinion. If you hold a tournament or a de facto tournament where you attempted to unify all the titles, maybe including the WBO, maybe not, you are virtually guaranteed to create a real commercial star and, and likely a pay-per-view star. And as Ray suggested, you could do a tournament where the finals was on pay-per-view, or you could also do it such that the finals was in like a prime slot on regular Fox uh, you know, or a prime slot on Showtime, and the winner would be in line for a pay-per-view fight directly after they won. I mean, one thing is certain, no matter who emerges, even even if it's Arison Lara, who's already had a couple big commercial shots and not broken through, whoever emerges would have some serious commercial value. And they would likely vault their career to the next level the way that, like, Usyk, Inouye, and Taylor have all done with the WBSS. And in the best case scenario, they would become an immediate automatic pay-per-view fighter and they could provide the PBC with some really useful options for welterweights who want to move up or 160-pounders if the winner of this tournament wants to move up. And let's actually look for a second at how the logistics of this would work and kind of go through the differences between a tournament and a de facto tournament. I mean, these are like... There, there are significant challenges to making this happen, and I just want to acknowledge this first. Like, First of all, you, you need all these guys to sign up. And it, you at least need all three of your champs to sign up and all three of your former champs to sign up. Like Traditionally, this has been a challenge. I mean, in this instance, the division is pretty cost-controlled, so it will be easier, but it'd still be a challenge. There's no question about it. The three current champs would probably want to make good money uh, against lesser opponents. And we've kind of seen, you know, we saw J-Rock got Jason Rosario. Who is Jason Rosario? Well, now we know who he is, but, you know, before that he had two losses coming into this. And, you know, so they, when you're a champion, it's like you come out and you don't want to face any of these eight guys right away, especially for, you know, when it's not a mandatory title defense. Like, so it's kind of tough. Like, they'd... You go from something that's already that's supposedly cost-controlled, but you got to really financially incentive these guys to all get in the ring together. So then maybe it's not you know fiscally sound. And the pay scale is tough because like the World Boxing Super Series just had a flat rate and a win bonus for each fighter, no matter who it was. And for some of the fighters, it was more money, but not that much more money. And for some of the fighters, they probably made more money. But for a lot of the fighters, it's by far the best payday of their career, so they just took it. Now here. Each of these fighters are going to have different established baselines for pay and maybe even different contractual guarantees. So they'll all have to make individual deals. And they'll have to make three fight deals because you can't have them renegotiate in the middle of the tournament. I mean, this is really tough too. For example, like Arisandi Lara's last fight was against Canelo's brother. Like, even in the first round, he'd be in way tougher than that. So he would definitely want better pay. Like I said, some of the fighters I'm sure have high minimum purses, you know, especially with Rosario just winning his first big fight. Like he'll still be on pretty low pay compared to someone like Lara or Charlo, who, you know, Lara's been in with Canelo. Like 
a lot of these guys have been in with each other. And you'd also have to consider that, like, the purses for the title fight. You know, basically, there's going to be, an eight, in an eight-person tournament like this, there could be seven fights, and as many six of them could be title fights. And there'd be a lot of unification fights. So all of a sudden, that could get pretty expensive real quick, and you'd go from having a cost-control division to actually something that's pretty expensive. So, like, the other part of this is pretty much everyone would be in tough in the first round, which brings up another question, like, how would you seed the tournament? I mean, PVC obviously manages all these guys in addition to to sort of broadcasting them. So you really got to keep everybody happy. Like you're their manager and that's bound not to happen because you have three champs and three former champs and all of them have pretty high profiles. So any logical scenario means you'll have a top four seeds. And I think three of them would be belt holders, maybe four. So who among the former champs, like that includes Jared Hurd, Tony Harrison, Jarrod Williams, like who's going to be the sixth seed? You know, I don't know. And I mean, would you want to go to certain rematches right away? Like, it all starts to get pretty debatable. If I was just purely seeding it from scratch, right now, I'd probably go with Charlo as the top seed, given his stature. Rosario is the number two seed because he's unified. Maybe Lara is number three. J-Rock is number four. And either Hurd is Harrison is five and six. It gets a little tricky because if you're Jared Hurd, you probably want in the tournament, but would you want, you know, J-Rock in the first round or Lara in the first round? Like, those are tough fights that you've already been through. You know, stylistically, you might actually prefer Rosario or Charlo. In fact, given Rosario was a 25-1 to underdog against J-Rock, like, a lot of people would want him in the first round. Maybe J-Rock just wants that rematch. It's Castaño and Lubin to close out. Like they're not going to have too much say unless Castaño breaks the belt. But brings up a bigger issue: Do you see it based on who's best, or do you try to see it on the best matchups in the first round? Because what makes this division awesome is that it's competitive, and a lot of these guys match up well against each other. But some of the guys here match are, are like the kryptonite for each other. So it's a lot of it's based on who you get and when, or if you get them. And that's an extremely important element to this. So let's sort of put a pin in that and come back to it later. You know, I'd actually say for the best pure matchups, I'd probably go like Charlo Castaño, J-Rock Rosario on one side of the bracket, and then maybe Laura Harrison and Herb Lubin on the other side. But you could also make a case for Herb Rosario and J-Rock Lubin. And... Those are sort of vaguely based on seeds and vaguely based on what would be good matchups. I'm probably wrong with that, and I think I'll bring I'll I'll close that circle later. But you know, the negative here is like something like Lara Harrison is a really tough first round fight for both guys. So you might have to pay them extra. You might have to do stuff like win bonuses in each round. Maybe nothing crazy, but something like 250k that could incentivize these guys to do it. Maybe there's a pretty significant win bonus towards the end, like a million bucks or something like that. I mean, obviously, if the tournament was final was on pay-per-view, each guy could be sharing the money a certain way, and you could do the winner gets a little bit of extra share or something. 
Um, I don't really think I do the finals on pay-per-view, but, you know, big part of that depends on how, what your broadcasting strategy is. If you're PBC and you're going to do something ambitious like this, you've got to really get the broadcast part of this right. One of the challenges here is that I think my instinct is you'd have to pick either Fox or Showtime for this because I think it'd be really tough from a branding perspective to do parts of it on two different networks. You know, Fox brings more visibility in terms of total viewers, and obviously they're distributing four pay-per-views a year, so they could maybe bring that element into the finals, or at least you know the first fight up for the winner of the finals. And they have great on-air marketing where they can plug it into high-profile spots like the NFL. Isn't on all that much, but they, you know, sixteen or seventeen weeks out of the year, and then playoffs, but. There's baseball, there's WWE, there's all kinds of stuff where they can really promote it. If you're Fox, you definitely want the final to happen in that December slot where you still got the NFL to push it. You've got a big marketing push leading up to it for the week or two before it. That means the semis would probably have to happen in July and August, which means the first round would have to happen in like February, March, and April. But Fox traditionally hasn't had the bandwidth to do like four fight nights in a reasonably short period of time. Like they just have dates and you get whatever dates you get. They have other commitments to other programs. And it's, you know, it would be tough because, you know, you'd probably, they'd probably want to do some pay-per-views during the spring and maybe one of these, you'd have to get creative and one of these fights is an undercard on a pay-per-view or something like that. But it's tough. I mean, if you look at all that, what Showtime has to schedule, they don't, they're much more flexible and much more able to accommodate these kind of dates. And, you know, even if it's just based on that reason alone, I'd probably lean towards using Showtime for it. And look, they could definitely do the first round in a short period of time, no matter what. You know, Showtime did in 2019, they kind of did that thing where it was like one show a month, but. They don't have any other competing program on Saturday night. I'm sure, I'm sure they could adjust things as need as need be, and they'd have a lot more flexibility if there were injuries or anything like that to start and stop the tournament as need be. And that's stuff you want to take into account for this. And probably most importantly, they would be great at doing the shoulder programming. Their shoulder programming is excellent. Their institutional knowledge of the sport is excellent, and they could really define this as premier premium PVC programming. I think that's a great counter to the Fox narrative. You know, Showtime would face some challenges with it, though, for sure. Like, they're doing 12 PVC cards for Showtime Championship Boxing per year. And if you do this in one calendar year, and you split it up so that every fight in the tournament is a main event, over half your main events that you're going to show are all tied into one weight class taking a pretty big risk. I mean, also, Showtime may look at this and say, hey, if we're building a fighter, if we're building this weight class, like we need some long-term assurances that they're actually going to stay on Showtime. And this doesn't just sort of turn into we build a star and then they leave to go elsewhere. I don't know if PBC is willing to do that. Like, why bother if you're Showtime building a star if they're just going to end up fighting on Fox pay-per-view if you know, if Errol Spence moves up to 154, like you got to have some kind of guarantee there. 
I went through earlier how it would be, you know, I thought it'd be a one network type deal. Like maybe you could do both. Maybe you could split it up. You could split the first and second rounds evenly and then kind of have the finals where you pick one network. Uh, I'm guessing Fox just because of the eyeballs, but, you know, based on the time of year, it could be showtime. The problem is with that, whichever network doesn't get the finals, it's like, well, why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? And that's those are tough waters to, to wade through, but look, Al's a pretty convincing guy. I'm sure he could get something like that if he really wants. You know, the real issue for me here with this weight class <clears throat> is what happens if you don't do the tournament. Because I think the I think the most likely scenario here is that no promoter or content provider is ever going to do a tournament like this, no matter how good of an idea it is. And I think mostly that's just because it's it starts to get fairly complex, as I've just explained, in terms of how you schedule it, and who gets paid what, and how you're going to keep everybody happy, and what if there's injuries. I think, though, the opportunity cost here is huge if you don't do it. You know, if you're making an argument for the tournament, there's really two strong reasons to do the tournament. One is that you're almost guaranteed to produce a real star, like a pay-per-view fighter, someone who can generate revenue for you. You know, that's a great argument. And I've kind of, I've touched on that earlier. The other great argument you can make for doing it is the opportunity cost is pretty high if you don't do it. And here's why. First and most importantly, I actually think PBC has trying to have, they've basically been doing a de facto tournament and making unification fights in this weight class for well over a year at this point. And what happens is the guys that they've built up while doing this, they get built up to a certain point and they become a unified champion and then they lose. And you know, the PBC as a management company is actually they've set up this weight class incredibly well for their fighters to produce a star. But if you keep losing at all the big moments, you're not going to actually get to the point where you get a star. Like if there's a really high-profile fight being set up before that fight can get made, the guys lose. Like Charlo was expected to beat Harrison the first time. Hurd was expected to beat J-Rock. Both of them lost. And then J-Rock was being set up for a bigger fight later in 2020, and he lost. And who knows what you have with Rosario, who has two belts. He could lose next time out. Now, this can be really exciting for the core base, you know, but if you look at the ratings for this, they're inconsistent. Like, some of them have done pretty well, like the first Charlo Harrison fight, like, that did well, so so did the second. And some of them just eh, kind of meh, like, they're not great. Like, J-Rock this past weekend wasn't great. When Showtime's been doing Erickson Lubin, he's got, those, that, those fights have done terrible ratings. When FS1 was doing it, I mean, Castano, I don't really blame Castano for it too much, but, like, Castano didn't do great. He was up against Canelo or whatever and a bunch of other stuff. But still, the Fox pattern, it's kind of been tied to the time of the year and how much promo it gets. But the larger point here is that in a division that has produced some of the best TV and certainly some of the best non-pay-per-view fights that we've seen in the past calendar year, you'd expect more of a breakthrough like, not just in terms of TV viewership, but in terms of media coverage, in terms of making, like, a clear recognition that this is just more than a competitive weight class. Like, it's a great weight class. 
The challenge you face when you're starting to market this idea to casual fans is that the belts are changing hand too many times and no one can identify in the general public who the, the real guy is and who they need to pay attention to. It's just so much of a merry-go-round at the top like you don't see guys actually building. And one of the challenges here is like, yes, you've seen good fights, but you haven't seen the building of fighters and journeys to the spot where they're on the same network. Like Showtime did a great job of building this division in 2018 on their undercards in some of their main events, and then Fox took most of the fights from that, that, and they tried to build on that and build a different audience. And granted, it's a larger audience, but you know, it's a different audience that they're building. And then they take these guys who've been built up and they lose. The UFC had this this issue. They've had it historically at several weight classes, most notably at like 155. Was just stacked with great competitors, and before Connor made his run there, it just the belt constantly changed hands, and no one can build themselves up into a, a real commercial star. And that has a lot of effects because then you can't build up a rival to the commercial star, where you see real breakthrough pay per view numbers. You know, and if you're, if you're not talking pay per view, if you're just talking combat sports on free TV, like to build the numbers up, you need recognizable fighters with understandable storylines. And then something that my guy Kurt Emhoff brings up all the time, like fights that lead to fights. And you don't get fights. You get fights that should lead to a fight, and then they don't lead to a fight because somebody loses. And it's not anyone's particular fault here. PBC has a lot of great... It shows that they're putting on great fights for the core fans. But when you have a weight class like this, you also want to build a commercial star. And I think the opportunity cost for not having a formal tournament is that you lose the element of fights leading to fights in a commercial sense because in boxing, when the champ loses and doesn't go right into a rematch, like we're seeing Jared Hurd versus Santana. And that's not, that's it's great for Jared Hurd. He gets to fight Santana, but it's not great for us. And yes, you can try to do a de facto tournament to figure all this out. But the problem that I mentioned above is I actually think PBC has been doing a great or they've been trying to do a great version of a de facto tournament, and it has been working out. And when you look down the road, there's lots of good reasons to have it work out, because you want one or two truly established stars at 154 if you're PBC for a couple of different reasons. First of all, Errol Spence, Danny Garcia, Sean Porter are all candidates to move up to that weight class. They're bigger commercial stars than anyone at 154 right now. In the case of Spence, you could say much bigger. You know, with Spence in particular, if if he fights Danny Garcia at welterweight this summer or fall or whatever, and then, you know, Pacquiao goes to fight Floyd, like, what's next for him? Like, I've talked about that a lot on this podcast. Like, if PBC's going to stick to their guns and not let Terrence Crawford fight anybody, and they need another option for Spence, well, this is that option. Like, the only other real candidate in their stable right now is Keith Thurman, who would do a decent pay-per-view number for Errol Spence. You know, I could be wrong. Maybe Spence's commercial commercial upside ends up growing a lot faster than I'm projecting. You know, but I'm not even sure what, like, a Spence Thurman, what, what, what a number that would do. If Thurman's just so inconsistent here. You know, you're going to quickly get to Crawford. I mean, if I was PVC, I'd probably be freezing Crawford out until his contract was up for the time being. But you also got to factor in that you wanted to make profitable pay-per-views, and he might be your only pathway to do it. 
But if you're negotiating with them, you need another option. This could be your other option. It definitely could. You know, I thought they were going to run into this problem real quickly. One of the interesting things about Spence's car crash is instead of fighting Danny Garcia in January and probably taking another in-house fight in the middle of the year, you know, now it, it kind of buys them an extra six months, something like that, to, to, to not have to make the, the Crawford fight. You know, probably the other real opportunity cost here of not doing a tournament is, you know, this thing of, I kind of mentioned it above, but everybody talks about, oh, this is a cost-controlled division, there's no stars. Here's the thing, like, guess what? Like, if these titles keep changing hands and you don't build a true star who can demand, like, a bigger network fee or be on pay-per-view, it's really not that much work. It's it's not cost-controlled. Like, that argument is going to go away real quick. Like, this weight class started out as that third-round quarterback on a rookie contract for the NFL or, like, that, that rookie breakout or second-year breakout NBA player who's on a tiny contract. And... You know, you really have a short window with those things to spend all your money if you're a, a, a pro football or pro basketball team. Kind of a same, similar analogy here. I mean, Jason Rosario was probably really cost-controlled until he got two titles. And he's probably not going to be cost-controlled with two titles. And even if he loses and becomes a former titleist, his pay will drop, but it'll still be more expensive than he was. You know, so... If you stay on the path that you're on, like this weight class is just going to get more expensive. And, you know, it needs to move the needle and get results for you on the TV front, or it's not worth continuing to have all these fights. And if it doesn't move the needle, then we're just going to be back where we were in the welterweight division like two years ago for PVC, where you had this big stable of fighters, but none of them were pay-per-view, and so they would rarely fight each other. Now, that's changed in 2019 because they added Manny Pacquiao and Errol Spence broke through on pay-per-view. But this point goes back to one of my main talking points of the division, which is there aren't any major stars. And while it's a deep roster of very good fighters, in theory, you can make a lot of great matchups. But what you can't have, you know, and, and, and as a network or content provider like the PBC, the whole point of doing this is that you need to develop stars on the network that can then make the jump to pay-per-view and be a business unto themselves. What you can't have happen is this sort of merry-go-round of titles and all the time, like, you're sitting there and Fox or Showtime, like, like you've spent all this marketing effort and time and money and it kind of just turns into nothing. And if these fighters just trade titles and no one ever breaks out, Every time one of them loses, it's going to set them back, like, their career a few a few months. Because they'll just have a comeback fight or whatever. Nothing organic ever builds. So by the time you spend so many dates and slots building up the division, it's no longer cost-controlled, and you don't have a star, about it, uh, star out of it. Like, it's kind of a disaster. I mean, in summary, I would do the tournament if I was PVC. I would set it up so that you have to start it almost immediately. Like maybe you start it with the J-Rock Rosario rematch as a first rounder. Then you do Lara Harrison or Hurd Harrison with Lubin being the one Harrison doesn't fight. 
I'd probably do Charlo Castaño, but the only thing I'd say to that is if Castaño Teixeira does happen, which maybe it does at this point, you know, if Castaño brings another belt to the tournament, maybe you could switch around the matchmaking a little bit. Maybe do Herd Castaño, Charlo Lubin on one side, Laura Harrison and J-Rock Rosario on the other side. And to be clear here, if I'm PVC, this is almost a no-brainer. Like, if you can get the sanctioning bodies on board, which should be easy, like this is really a no-brainer. Now, the network side, I don't know how I'm feeling about it because you're taking on quite a bit more risk than the PVC is. I mean, if I'm Showtime, I'd probably want to do it. And I want, you know, I'd work with the PVC on dates for it to make it happen. And I'd promote it. I'd market it. I would definitely do it with some strings, though, attached. Like, I, I would say, like, if, it, if the winner of the tournament isn't on pay-per-view, you get their next fight on pay-per-view or something like that. Like, you get... If you, you definitely get their fight when a high-profile welterweight moves up, like I'd really ask for some stuff to make it happen. I mean, Fox just sort of seems to take this attitude of like, hey, sure, go ahead, but we aren't changing the dates around or the money for you. So if this all fits into a specific slot that we already have, great, we'll throw some marketing support behind it. You know, it's a little bit different. I mean, if your fox is kind of like, eh, this is kind of cool. We'll, we'll help you out. But they're not really going to help you out. I think Showtime would really help you out. I think that's what I do. I think I try to do it on Showtime. Um, and I think it'd be, it, it could just be something that's great. All right, let's move on to the preview section. Tomorrow, Thursday, January 30th. Thursday of Super Bowl weekend. DeZone's having Demetrius Andre versus Luke Keeler for Andre's WBO title. We're also seeing Tevin Farmer fighting Jojo Diaz for Farmer's IBF junior lightweight title. Danny Roman versus Mirajan Akhmadilov uh, for Roman's IBF and WBA junior featherweight titles. There's the weird YouTube fight where Jake Paul is fighting. You know, odds on the card are as follows. Andre's somewhere between like 30 to 1 and 50 to 1, depending on where you see it. I think there's actually one point that at one time had a 250 to 1. Every other fight is extremely competitive. I mean, Farmer is like a one and a half or two to one favorite. Like, it's pretty close. MJ is about the same thing. I mean, that's Akhmadi Aliyev. Um, and he's like between minus 165 and minus 200, depending on where you look. The YouTube fight is essentially a coin flip. I think, like, Paul is a slight favorite. You know, I've said my thing on these strange fight cards. It, this, this is a strange fight card, you know. The first two fights on the card I really, really care about. And then with everything else, it's kind of like, okay, whatever. Then on Saturday, February 1st, from Haiku, China on ESPN, we had Jose Ramirez fighting Victor Postal. We had Esquivo Falcao versus some Chinese fighter that I, I don't know how to pronounce. But it's not happening. And I think there's actually some weird blowback where like people initially were like, ah, it's a joke that they're not doing that fight. It's kind of, it's not a joke right now. Like, it's pretty serious stuff. Also, well, that's not going to happen. So the only fight we're going to get on Saturday, February 1st, from Biloxi, Mississippi on FS1, Jordana Suga is fighting Mike Dallas Jr. at welterweight. Also on the card, Michael Rivera fighting Fidel Maldonado Jr. at lightweight. Ugas is like between a 25 and 33 to 1 favorite. Rivera is something like 15 to 20 to 1. I don't expect either fight to be that competitive unless... Dallas Jr. shows up and realizes it's his last big opportunity. Maybe he puts it all on the line. It could be fun TV. I still don't think it'll be competitive. 
A lot of boxing on the weekend of Saturday, February 8th. Not too much of it televised. The main one here on Showtime from Allentown, Pennsylvania. Gary Russell Jr. is fighting Tugstad Nyambayar at featherweight for Russell's WPC belt. Guillermo Rigondeau fighting Liboro, Liborio Solis for a vacant WBA regular bantamweight title. No odds out on this card, but I think the main event should be pretty good. Nyambayar could end up being some trouble for Russell Jr. I think Russell Jr. will win, but it should be a fun fight no matter what. Rigando has had this sort of late career resurgence as a fun TV fighter. Kind of all in on that. Great stuff. So look out for both of those two. I think we'll probably talk. I'm, you know, I've been meaning to do this Floyd episode forever. I'll probably just do that next episode. Maybe there'll be some Fury Wilder 2 talk. I don't know. Uh, I will talk to you guys in two weeks. Hopefully my, my voice will be much better by then. Take it easy.
you what you was looking for?